Let me just say, uh, again, it's nice to be back here. I appreciate uh, Mark Harrigan preaching for me uh, last Sunday. I also appreciate those who've uh, done such a wonderful job today helping bring about uh, the service and the music and things that uh, when I was not here to pull those things together. Uh, we did have a wonderful time. Uh, just to quickly say, God was so gracious to my family uh, to be able to gather all of us together, um, all of my siblings, nephews, niece, um, and uh, and my, our children and, our, and their spouses, and we all were able to celebrate uh, my mother's 90th birthday. So I want to thank you for your prayers. We covered many miles uh, safely. And uh, it is wonderful to be able to celebrate and say the things you want to say uh, in giving thanks to God while we still have uh, our loved ones with us. Let me also just say I want to thank uh, so many who labored uh, extensively in the last uh, number of weeks, and particularly yesterday, to create a, a, an opportunity to invite some of their friends with the ladies here on um, the tee and uh, thankful for the many seeds that were sown there and pray for the follow-up and opportunities to have conversations that uh, flow from that. And again, uh, thankful for uh, all those who did um, carry out the vision of trying to make this season an opportunity to point people to Christ. And so we give thanks for all of those labors. And so if some of the people are moving slowly today, you'll know why. Uh, it was a long day yesterday. Let's pray together. Father, again, it is a, a great delight to review in our minds the wonders of the first coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We began our service with singing of a song of pointed to Israel waiting for that day when their Savior would come. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you were not negligent in your promise, but we thank you that although contrary to what many of the people expected at the time, our Lord did appear. He did take on human flesh. He did dwell among us. And we thank you, Father, that as we reflect upon the truths of that, even now, it makes us fill with great anticipation for his second coming. In the meantime, we pray that you would help us to uh, understand the significance and the wonders of Christ's first coming and how that impacts what we're doing between now and when he comes again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps many of you have known and seen uh, the classic film by Frank Capra called It's a Wonderful Life. In our family, it has been a tradition to watch that as a family as many times as we could. <clears throat> at least once through the holiday season if possible. I think my son Eric knows about every line in that movie and sometimes can annoyingly say the words before they're spoken in the movie. But anyway, um, it's a story about a man uh, called George Bailey. And uh, he attempts to keep this savings and loan afloat. And his efforts have been uh, quite heroic at times until there's a situation where Due to actions beyond his control, things that happened that he had nothing to do with, he is facing a financial disaster. And he's facing not only that as a savings and loan, but he's facing the disaster of his own jail time. And then eventually, of course, the family name that has been associated with this small business would also be a disgrace. As he thinks about this desperation of what he's going to do and contemplates how awful the situation is, he contemplates suicide. Only then to be shown by this guardian angel who appears 
as only Frank Capra could make him appear. He shows him what this small town that he lived in all these years would be like had he not been there, had he not lived. And he's shown how his ordinary, everyday life and efforts that help so many families that change the small town and the lives of people in this small town, how it made such a difference. He's able to see those things and, and have a new perspective. And so this morning, I would like, in light of that kind of thinking, I'd like to jump from that and think for a moment in somewhat of a theoretical realm here. What would the world look like if Jesus Christ had never been born? If Jesus of Nazareth had never entered human history, what would be the implications for right now and even in the future? Now, I could easily digress into a number of ongoing topics that we could explore uh, forever here. I mean, we could do things like saying, we would not call this the year 2014. There would be no BC, no AD in our calendar. Uh, there would be no gathering of people on Sunday. Sunday would just be a normal day like every other day. Uh, many of us would be working. There would be no such thing as churches or denominations. There would be no, uh, so many hospitals, so many relief orphans, and many ministries around the world would not be in existence. There are many, many other things we could talk about, the potentials for those things. But my intention this morning is to not just think about theoretical ideas or fanciful imaginations just for the sake of a good movie plot, but my goal this morning is to review really the essential part, the essential role that Jesus' incarnation plays in the overall scheme of Christianity. What would have been the consequences of an empty manger? And I'll just summarize. Here's the answer to my question. So here's the whole point of my sermon right here. Essentially, if Jesus had never been born, we would have had an empty, in a sense, an empty or an ineffective cross. What do I mean by that? Well, assume for a moment then that Jesus <clears throat> excuse me, was not born in Bethlehem. Assume that he did not grow up in Nazareth. And he did not attend the three annual feasts that every good Jew would have done in Jerusalem. And assume that he was not present in the city of David when the city at a time when Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas, the two Roman rulers that were overseeing that particular geographical area, they were in residence there. And at that particular time, there was, the city was crowded with pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims from all over the world, gathering to celebrate Passover. But Jesus wasn't there. And assume then, because Jesus was, there, was not there, he could not be arrested on that occasion, that Pilate then was spared this political hot potato of having to somehow deal with another potential Jewish uprising. Well, there, there would have been calm among the crowd on this occasion. And there was no reason then on that occasion to release this notorious prisoner that was already behind the bars there in lock and key. This guy by the name of Barabbas. He was described in the scriptures as someone who was a, a member of a group of insurrectionists, people who were ready to overthrow Rome. He was also listed as a murderer, someone who had taken his zeal to overthrow Rome and started to kill people, a real zealot. Well, Barabbas would have been, in a sense, had Jesus not ever existed, he would have been put on that center cross on that occasion. And outside the city walls, 
on that particular day, here is Barabbas along with a couple other uh, of uh, these thieves and criminals. They would have suffered and died for crimes that they had committed against the Roman authorities. If Jesus had not been born, the center cross would have held a notorious sinner, not a savior. It would have held a rebel and certainly not in any way a redeemer. Had Barabbas then been crucified and not Jesus Christ, there would have been, and this is a key point I'm trying to make this morning, there would have been no adequate substitute sacrifice to die in our place to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sins before a holy God. This is found and very clearly taught in Hebrews chapter 2. I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. Hebrews 2, page 1421. The writer of Hebrews, who is trying to clarify a number of important points to his Jewish audience, he is emphasizing that Jesus is supreme and greater than angels. And so we pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 16. For assuredly, Jesus does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of of Abraham. He's talking about to humans. Therefore, Jesus had to be make had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that is a God-satisfying sacrifice for the sins of the people. What he's saying there is that in order to fulfill the requirement of being a substitute sacrifice offered to God, it was necessary for Jesus to take on human flesh and be born of a woman. Had Jesus not been born and had Barabbas died on that cross, no one would have been qualified to serve as a suitable punishment-bearing substitute on, uh, in our place before God. Barabbas would have died there on that center cross for his own sins. He would have died as one deserving to have died as a consequence of his own actions, of his own choices. And the necessary qualifi qualification to be our substitute sacrifice is that we needed someone who was a sinless human being. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and notice how this ties in with this also. Page 1441, 1 Peter chapter 3. In the words of Peter, we needed a person who was going to stand in our place who was righteous. A person who was without fault and therefore who would be acceptable to God. We read in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for our sins once for all the just one for the unjust ones, in order that he might bring us to God. For God to be just and the justifier of ungodly people, someone had to substitute and take our punishment upon themselves. If God wants to show mercy and he wants to forgive us, which he longs to do, 
and do so in a fair way, he has to find some way to, uh, to, to bring about the consequences of the sin that has been already committed and do it in a way that's keeping with his just nature. You see, God is a just God. He cannot leave guilty people unpunished. Numbers chapter 14. All sin must be atoned for. And just if we commit one sin, that's enough to bar us from God's presence forever. And so if Jesus had not been born and he was never crucified on that cross, we would have been left with criminals dying on crosses. And along with them, we ourselves would have remained cut off from God. We would have remained alienated from the relationship with the God who made us for himself. There's no way that Barabbas could have fulfilled this priestly role, which was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. There was only one person who was qualified to be a mediator between a holy God and a sinful people, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now you say, that's pretty narrow-minded to think that only one person, it boils down to one person. Well, I'm just giving you what Scripture says. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. 1 Timothy 2, we read this. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. You see, if Jesus had not been born, no one, would have been qualified to assume the role of representing us before God and to represent God to us. And the good news that we proclaim as Christians regarding the birth of Jesus Christ is that God sent the only one who could adequately fulfill this important responsibility. Now I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 9. I'm going to read a rather extensive reading here. Hebrews 9 page 1427 in your pew Bible, because the writer of Hebrews expands on this theme over and over to emphasize the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to fulfill this unique mediatorial role. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves. He's contrasting now all of the uh, portrayal of what was to be, in a sense, uh, foreshadowed in the Old Covenant. So he's talking about literal tabernacle, he's talking about literal blood and literal goats and calves and things that had been offered in the previous uh, covenant. But Jesus Christ entered the holy place, Sorry, not through the blood of blood and of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, that is the outward person, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal 
inheritance. Now notice what he says there in the uh, verse where he talked about offering himself uh, without blemish to God. He says in, uh, uh, for example, uh, verse 14, he talks about cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What are dead works? What kind of works is he talking about here? Those are the works of people who are self-righteous and people who are unregenerate or not believers. And they're people who make comments like this. I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And they compare themselves to someone else who think is higher on the scale of their sin and evil and perversity. They might say, well, I give to charity. Uh, I attend church occasionally. I volunteer at a homeless shelter and on and on and on they go. Those are all considered to be dead works in the sense of those works do not arise out of a true spiritual life that comes from God. They are of no value to God. Jesus offered to God the only life-producing work for sinners like you and me. <clears throat> he is the only one who is qualified to act as a mediator, bringing sinful people to God and bringing God to sinful people like you and me. So why is it that Jesus is exclusively the only solution to this dilemma? Well, I would offer two points to prove that, or two points. First is because he was a true human. Since Jesus was truly human, the blood of his own sacrifice was effective, and uh, whereas the blood of animals is not able to solve the kind of sin problem before a holy God that we have ourselves. It's the problem of our sin, not the sin of animals. There was only those that are given sort of as a, as a way of portraying what was necessary. Someone had to die in our place, the idea of giving a substitute. But secondly, Jesus also was God. He's not only human, but he's also God. He was qualified to come into the presence of God without any need for his own sacrifices. Unlike the priests of the Old Testament, they had to offer a sacrifice for their own sin. And since Jesus conquered death, he was raised up, he is seated in glory even now. He is able to provide to us not just a temporary solution, he's able to give to us the wonderful gift of an internal inheritance. Something that you can know is going to be in place from here on out ad infinitum. No ending to it. It cannot be taken away. This is the kind of provision that comes through our only mediator, Jesus Christ. When the words about Jesus' birth were being given to those who would be affected by it most dramatically and uh, most specifically to Mary and to Joseph, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and he provided God's perspective on what was to happen. This mysterious pregnancy that Joseph was just dumbfounded by, knowing that it had nothing to do with him, and so Joseph was told that his fiancée, the one betrothed to him, Mary, would bear a son. He was to have a special name for that son, a name called Yeshua, which means Savior. And that son was to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. What does that mean? It means that Jesus, as Yeshua, saves his people from the penalty of their sin, initially, that is, he saves us and frees us from the idea that we are condemned, that we're going to face eternal damnation, and therefore we are saved from that particular consequence of our sin. But he also will save from the power of sin. 
the struggle that we have with our flesh right now, the fact that we are in some levels of bondage and enslavement in patterns of sin that we still struggle to break free from, the things that we want to do, we don't do, the things that we know we shouldn't be doing, we, we do those things anyway. That kind of battle will finally be dealt with by Jesus. He will free us from the power of sin and also from the presence of sin. There will be one day where we will live without the corruption that comes as a result of the curse of sin that affects us even now. Jesus will restore us to the way we were meant to live, in wholeness, in fullness, with joy and complete, pure pleasure forevermore. Jesus was born to provide us what we cannot provide ourselves, full payment for our moral failings. And the more you think about this, there is full forgiveness for everyone who relies upon Jesus as their substitute in relying upon his death and his resurrection for them and in their place. And that through Jesus, we don't have to carry this heavy, heavy, heavy burden of nagging guilt that we never seem to measure up to God's standards. Because when we come to Christ and we admit that we don't measure up those standards, we therefore are in a position we can receive all of the wondrous work he did on our behalf. It is by trusting in Jesus Christ, who was born to save his people from their sin, that we can be cleansed from sin and that we might serve the living and true God. Had Jesus not been born, we would not have known another important and wonderful component of what he came to do. We would never know and understand and see fully demonstrated the love that God has for each one of us. A love that's a self-giving love, a love that does not give up on us, a love that is willing to forgive, and a love that willing, it says, I will uh, hold you as my own, I will take you as my own. I will adopt you. I will treat you as if you're my own. Had Jesus not been born, we would not have escaped our brokenness and our shame. Had Jesus not been born, we would have had no assurance that we can gain acceptance before God. I've been thinking about what a gift it was and a life-changing gift for Martin Luther when it came to this whole concept of Jesus as his mediator. Luther was a person who was uh, following a, a lot of uh, various, I guess you'd say, uh, interesting traditions that he grew up with. And he was saved from death a couple of times. He was uh, in, a, in a thunderstorm and lightning struck very close by. He thought he could have died. He gave himself at that point to some saint and said, oh, well, I was saved by this particular Saint Anna, so therefore I'm going to give myself to be a monk. He's following all these ways to try to somehow be right with God. And he goes through many, many, many different forms of devotion to God to the highest extent possible by him. He is so dedicated to this concept of following what was prescribed to him as a religious person that he would go to confession of his sins and he would go on and on and on and on, confessing, 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 and it would drag on and drag on. And I'm sure the priest must have been looking at his watch like, come on, well, they didn't have watches. But I mean, they would have said, Come on, what is with this guy? You've said enough. And then he said this, My conscience would never give me assurance, but I was always doubting. And I said to myself, 
I did not perform that correctly. I never did enough of the various uh, responses I was told to do by the church to take the steps to fully be forgiven. And he says, I left out a particular part of my confession I should have included. He was just so weighed down by his guilty conscience before a holy God because he truly knew and felt the weight of what it meant to try to relate to a holy God. As you read this wonderful account of his life story called Here I Stand, he says, uh, he comes to a passage of Scripture, we finally begin to understand in Romans that the fact that God provides to us what we cannot gain on our own, a foreign, if you will, righteousness that's given to us by God. It's put onto our account. He says, my situation was that although I was an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage God. And therefore, I did not love a just and angry God. But rather, I hated and I murmured against him. Yet I clung to what this verse was saying about God. And night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. And then I grabbed that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. He declares us righteous through faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors to paradise. Such relief to him, such joyous new life took place in his heart. He says the whole scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hatred toward God, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage they found in Romans 1 became to me a gate to heaven. He says, if you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. A faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and God's will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon God in his fatherly, friendly heart, in which there is no anger, no ungraciousness. You see God, he who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if on a dark cloud that is drawn upon his face. What's the point? The point is, if we really understand what Christ has done for us, we therefore have a love for God that is just comes alive. We can't help but love God. We can't help but be amazed by Him. We can't help but be overjoyed at what Christ has done for us because of His greatness, of His love and grace and mercy. That was the passive obedience of Christ to give His life for us, to become our substitute, our mediator. I just want to secondly point out something very briefly here about another thought about what Christ, had he not been born, what we would have missed out on, and that is Barabbas. Had he been crucified on that center cross, he would not have been an adequate substitute sacrifice for sin because Barabbas had no righteousness to exchange with us. You see, Jesus' life as God and man was without fault. He never rebelled. Imagine that. 
He never yielded to temptation. He never gave in to the promptings of the devil. Jesus did not merely avoid evil thoughts and evil actions and words. He lived a perfect life of complete obedience. Therefore, his righteousness is something that he had of his own accord. And that righteousness was more than adequate to impute to us so that we would be permitted to stand before a righteous God by faith. You see, God is not great on the curve. His law demands a lifelong record of complete righteousness. And we all fail in that, of course. All of our righteousness and all of Barabbas' righteousness is like filthy rags. It's worthless. It is offensive. It is that which is disgusting. But praise be to God, our sinless, righteous substitute was sacrificed for our sins in order to bring us to God. And as he says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now here's what I want to portray here. Here's this very important understanding of substitution. If you were to take my record of sin, my lifelong record of sin, and I'm not going to pull it out here and show you because I couldn't even produce it. It is so massive. It is so long. It is so extensive that if you begin with the first moment in which I consciously defied probably something my mother told me or my father told me, like don't touch the ornament on the tree, you know, or something like that. From that first moment of doing exactly opposite of what I was told to do, you add up all of the sins I've committed in thought, in word, and indeed, that list would run from, if you were to unroll it on a piece of paper, about the size of a paper towel that was that, about that wide, you unroll that thing from Montauk, it would roll all the way over to Brooklyn Bridge. Size 12 font uh, in, in, in print, single space. I don't know how long yours is, but yours is probably similar. I've lived a little longer than some of you. But the point is this, that record of all those sins, thanks be to God, I can say to you today, I have a highly qualified, all-sufficient Savior who, when I, when I transferred my trust from my attempts to try to do enough to try to be right with God, I gave that up, repented of that. I came to Christ and said, I have no way to save myself. I'm trusting in Jesus alone. It is Jesus Christ who came and because of his death on that cross, stamped my record Paid in full. Every single one of those offenses before God, which brought about condemnation and punishment before God, it was stamped paid in full. Done. I didn't have to do anything other than just repent and receive Christ and trust Him as Savior. But beyond that, and this is what I'm trying to say, is that now, if you look on the list, it would then have for been blanked out. It would have been, you can't read all the offenses. They're all paid in full, so therefore there's no reason to have a long account of them. But in its place, though, because I have a righteous Savior who has his own righteousness, now on the record of my sins is now listed all of the obedience of Christ. So that everything that Christ did in keeping the law is now listed on my account as because I'm in Christ, now you look at the record and it says, look what Christ did this, Christ did this, Christ did this, Christ did this. And therefore, when God views me, 
He doesn't view me just as a person who is just not guilty, that is, with a blank record. He looks at me through the wonderful provision of Christ, my Savior. He looks at my account, and this is mind-boggling, and says that he is, this is one who is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. For example, when Jesus was identified at his baptism by the voice from heaven, the Father identifies him. He says, this is my beloved Son, the Son I love, and with whom I am well pleased. Well, this is the good news of the gospel. For those who repent and those who come to Christ, those who say, I cannot save myself, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone. God says to every true believer, you are my beloved child, and in you I am well pleased because of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is on my account. See, that is, my friend, the incredible good news, because Jesus did, He did come, he did take on human flesh. He was born. He indeed is the Savior to all who repent and believe. I want to make one more point, and then I'm going to conclude here. I'm aware as I've thought about these wondrous truths that there are many, many people living right around us and many people around our world today who are living as if Jesus had not ever been born. They are clueless about the joyous, wondrous news I've just explained to you. Countless souls who are burdened still with guilt, who are still enslaved in sin, who are without any hope, who are left to cope in life on their own. They are cut off from the God who made them, and they're waiting to hear good news, tidings of, good jo of great joy, which the angels then announced to the shepherds, that there's a Savior who has come. And that through Him we can have life. Through Him we can find true and full forgiveness. Through Him we can find the joy of being well-pleasing in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. And so I urge all of us once again to ask ourselves, does not the good news of Christ's first coming develop a compassionate heart on, on us toward those who are still lost, who still have yet to really understand and fully come to grips with Christ's first coming because the reality is if they don't understand and deal with that they're not ready for Christ's second coming and so again I would just say as we think about these truths and we reflect upon them as we sit and wonder may the Lord continue to give us hearts of compassion and concern and love for those around us who have yet to hear who still are waiting to understand who Christ is and who we can perhaps be the agents of reconciliation and good news into their lives let's pray Father, we pray that you would help us today as we try to fully ponder the depth and the wonders of all that our Savior has provided to us, all that he was willing to do to humble himself and take upon himself all of our punishment for sin. Lord, help us to once again, reflect deeply and profoundly on the wonders of what it means to receive His righteousness onto our account, 
by faith. And that we can still be sinners and at the same time we're sinners, we can be people who are right with you because of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that these truths would become fresh and momentous in our hearts and lives. May they well up within us, Lord, a, a new sense of love and joy and peace and delight in Jesus, our Savior. May it, Lord, draw us into deeper fellowship with you, more open prayer time with you, a more sense of being unashamed before you and celebrating the wonders of who you are and the glories of your redemption. I pray, Father, for those who are here today, perhaps they've never really released and given up trying to improve themselves. And I pray today, Lord, as they think about what Christ has done, that they would say, I repent of that. I turn away from that. I no longer desire to become a better person to try to gain my standing before God. I come and I claim Christ with all, as I am, with all my sins, my hang-ups, my, my failings. I come to Christ. I trust Him. I fully place my confidence and trust in Him alone. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in hearts, and I pray that you would also give us greater boldness and opportunities that would open up to us to help present Christ to others so that they might come to full understanding of the wonders of his first coming and be ready for his second coming again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.